When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for same race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Corpus coming in. Golden away. Golden away. Golden the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Today, we're speaking to a man who played 110 VFL games and lined up in four grand finals in six seasons for Collingwood. But it was a highly successful administrator that Andrew Ireland truly left his mark on the game and a big mark at that. The man that former Sydney chairman Richard Collis described as the most important recruit in the history of the Swans also left his fingerprints on all levels of the football tree in Queensland, including the Bears and the Lions. He's been at the centre of some of the biggest moments in the game's history and he wasn't scared to sign off on revolutionary contracts either, but more on that a bit later. It's a great pleasure to welcome him. G'day, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Pleasure, Sam. Now, I don't want to embarrass you straight off the top, but a couple of people in the footy industry told me, Andrew, that such was the esteem that you were held in as an administrator down the years. You were sometimes referred to as the king. Any truth in that? Oh, yeah. There was um, a period at the uh, Bears-Lions where there was a... That name sort of (laughs) stuck for a little while. There's, There's worse nicknames. Uh, there are, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I had that, and then uh, at the end uh, with the Swans, I ended up, I think, probably following Jason Dunstall, I ended up chief at the uh, <laughs> at the Swans. <laughs> no, it's always funny with those nicknames. As you say, there's, there's plenty of worse ones you could have. Oh, nicely done. And you've hung them all up, obviously. How's retirement? And um, most unusual, probably not what you expected, I'd, I'd imagine. Uh, no, I must admit, uh, uh, I moved back to uh, Brisbane after finishing as CEO of the of the Swans. Uh, my daughter had stayed in Queensland. She was just starting university as uh, my wife and I moved to Sydney. So uh, she's happily married and got a little uh, five-year-old. So we were keen to get back and be closer to her. So in Queensland, it's not been as tough as it has for some others around Australia this year. Mm. You let's go back to the beginning, Andrew, because you were born in London, were you not? I was born in London. Uh, my parents uh, 
decided when I was four to come out to Australia. And I guess it's only later in life that you reflect on um, the big decision it would have been for them to sort of leave family and move to the other side of the world mm. um, to see what they could do. And I did, um, when I was 12, they decided to head back to um, back to England for 18 months. When they headed back, it was both of them were losing parents. Um, we went back and they only soon got back in England and, and made the decision that for my future, um, Australia was the place to be. So spend 18 months living in Brighton. So I think I'm one of the few people in Australia probably barracking for Brighton and Hove Albion in, in the Premier League. Yeah, nicely done. And Well, so that's the round ball, but when did your relationship with the VFL-AFL start? How did that come about? Uh, look, I think like most uh, young boys in in Australia, you um, uh, it was footy in the football season and um, cricket in the cricket season. I grew up um, in Reservoir and uh, one of my best mates at primary school, Peter Telford, his, his older brother, Dick Telford, was actually playing at Collingwood, um, was a very good player in uh, the VFA after he finished at Collingwood. Um, was a, uh, actually won the Liston Trophy in the VFA, was a crack cricketer as well. So I spent a fair bit of time out on the roads like a lot of kids in those days, kicking a footy with uh, Peter and occasionally had a kick with Dick or tried to bowl him out, which we never used to do too successfully. <laughs> so you ended up finding your way to the Pies in the VFL. It's a big club, obviously, remains so today. What, what sort of player were you, Andrew, when you are up and going in your prime? Um. No, look, I, I mean, it was interesting. I, I played in the amateurs for Ivanhoe and um, I was actually a, a, a very strong Melbourne supporter and Collingwood had asked me to come down to train. I, I didn't. I stayed with the amateurs. A couple of guys at the amateurs felt that I was better playing senior amateur footy than perhaps under-19s at Collingwood. And I think somewhere in the back of my mind, uh, I had that Melbourne-Collingwood hatred. Um, but in the end, um, decided uh, to Bill Toomey, who was one of their recruiting guys, um, kept coming to see me. And at the end of 1974, I headed down and uh, played the last couple of games uh, with the reserves, which you could do in those days. And I, I sort of went, I was a centre-half forward when I left Ivanhoe, got to Collingwood. I actually played full forward a little bit um, but really, I was like a lot of failed forwards ended up probably being more a half-back flanker for most of my career. Yeah, okay. But you didn't have... Gee, i tell you what, Andrew, you didn't have much luck in grand finals, did you? You played in some very good sides in your time at the Pies, that must be said. But when it came to the last day, luck deserted you. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was tough over those over that period. I mean, it's interesting to reflect back. Um, you know, my first couple of years at... at Full years at Collingwood were with Murray Wiedemann and then Tommy joined us in 77. Um, and it was pretty, you could tell pretty much straight away, um, we trained a lot harder. It was um, a much tougher environment with Thomas coach. You know, I can remember, I think our fourth game of the year uh, in Tommy's first year in 77, we played Richmond on Anzac Day at the MCG. Both sides had won their first, um, three games and Tommy's first game coaching back against Richmond um, and there were 94,000 
uh, at the MCG, which just shows that you know that sort of Anzac Day tradition goes back a, a, an awful long way. Um, but you know, '77 we went from bottom to top of the ladder, got to the grand final, the draw in the first week. So you know, when people sort of chat about the draws in grand finals, I'm probably one of those unique few who actually been in one, and that was really tough because. Yeah, when you play in a draw and then ultimately lose the replay, probably there's more things in the draw that sort of haunt you in terms of if you've done this and done that when it's you know when a point would make the difference. Yeah. So we lost. I mean, um, yeah, that was just yeah. a crazy game, wasn't it? For so many reasons. I mean, 108,000 people there. I mean, North Melbourne goes scoreless in the second and third quarters and kick 9:22, and your mob are just as wasteful with. 10-16, it was just, uh, it was unprecedented drama at the time. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, it was one of those unusual games and, you know, three-quarter time, I think most people would have thought that Collingwood were, you know, in a pretty strong position. North came back really uh, strongly to to actually hit the front and I think sometimes people forget that Collingwood sort of had to work hard to get back to uh, to make it a, a draw and um, I mean I often reflect on it when people sort of talk about the draws to me it wasn't so much the physical um, uh, challenge to get back through the next week it was just the mental challenge the the fact mm. that you know your whole season and your mind is um, solely focused on that day and um, you know I still rem- remember you know, we, we st- the, the facilities had been booked for, um, you know, the post-game uh, function. So you still had to go through with the function, knowing that uh, that you were back into another week of building up for a grand final. I think, you know, when people reflected often the second grand final, and I think this was the case with the more recent one, I think it's probably more about the player's mental capacity to get back up for it than, than physically being able to do it. Certainly at its moments, the replay, didn't it? I mean, the AFL awards the Phil Manassa medal to the goal of the year winner, and, and this was the day that that became uh, part of the tradition. I mean, your teammate leaves the Brownlow medalist of the year, Malcolm Blight, in his wake. It was a ripping running goal, that one. It was. Um, you know, Phil was a, a pretty special player. It was interesting because I think, um, you know, he'd been a, a, probably the best junior at the time he came into AFL footy. He was seen as a... Um, you know, a real star. He probably never quite played to the level that that we knew he could. Um, he was still a very good player, but I think people thought that he could have been an absolute champion of the game. But he showed on, on that day the capacity he had. He was a you know strong player, but you know could run and and kick the ball well. And you know, that that goal would have to go down. I think in any argument. Uh, as one of the greatest goals ever, certainly in the grand final. And Andrew, while you were at Collingwood as a player, you also worked as a development officer at the club. Looking back on it, did this plant the seed for the life that you would live after footy? Yeah, it did, Sam, it definitely did. Um, I was sort of fortunate, um, and often people ask, uh, soccer did play a role in it because in 1974, with Australia doing so well in the World Cup, um, the VFL decided, you know, soccer could become a real challenge, and so decided to provide 
some grants to the clubs to employ full-time development officers. Um, Phil Carmen for a short period was Collingwood's first one and then I took Phil probably never really got into that role and I took the <laughs> role um, and it was you know Kevin Sheedy with uh, Kevin and I when we catch up we often talk back to those days Kevin was um, was a development officer officer Robert Flower you know one of the great players of the game Kevin Sheehan who's stayed in footy for so long and you know, so tired and dedicated to junior footy. Um, so it was an interesting time. There was no doubt working at Collingwood in in that sort of administrative role. And I, Jack Regan was the footy uh, secretary at Collingwood at the time. Peter Lucas was the CEO and general manager, but he also ran the social club. Um, Jack was footy manager and I shared an office with him. In, the, in those days, there weren't a lot of spaces put aside for the administrators administration of the game so we actually not only shared an office we shared a desk i'd be on one side and he was on the other and jack was a the classic old footy uh manager and so i i, I worked in um footy development but also did some things around the club and i remember i was thinking the other day um sitting up in the collingwood boardroom going through the manually the membership list trying to sort out um, the occupations of some of our members to look to see whether there was an opportunity for us to use those members um, as we had new players come to the club for, for jobs and the like. And I think it was through that period, no doubt, that I sort of started to think about um, being an administrator post-footy. And whilst I was a development officer on one occasion, um, we recruited a, a guy named Colin Kamali from Western Districts in uh, in, uh, in Queensland, and part of the obligation in signing Colin was for us to go up and do some work uh, for Western Districts in their area. And Len Thompson and I went up and did a sportsman's night, and then did some work in the schools and the like. And it was really through that, and we did some work for Sherwood Footy Club um, through those connections that I thought. Um, there was an opportunity for footy in Queensland and went back a, a number of times um, over the summer breaks. And then at the end of my career, there was an opportunity uh, that came up with the Queensland Australian Football League sort of heading their footy and, and footy development. And so I saw that and decided to take it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because obviously, Andrew, some players are dragged kicking and screaming out of clubs, but you retire at 27 years young to take up this position. It was a life-changing decision. Yeah, it was. Um, and a tough, a tough decision. Um, you know, I, I, I had a really good relationship with Tom Hafey. I think like a lot of um, perhaps the more battling players, uh, Tom... Uh, Tom was probably easier on someone like me than he was with the really talented ones. He, he was probably less forgiving of the more talented ones. And, um, so I had a good relationship with Tom. I, I didn't have any doubts that I could continue playing. Um, but I was um, of the view that, you know, footy is going to finish at some time in the short, in the near future. I, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd completed a biochemistry degree whilst um, I was at uni and had done that for a short period before I went into the football development, um, but decided to go. I, I sort of reflect on it because I've, I've always been one 
in uh, in a footy sense around contracts, and I was still contracted at the time. I probably saw it in a different light because I wasn't really wanting to leave to go to um, to play footy anywhere. Um, but Collingwood weren't happy that I did go, and um, certainly said that I'd have to stand out of footy. When I got to Queensland, which actually was a, be- a real benefit because I think had I just started playing footy straight away, um, and I only did that for a couple of years anyway, but had I done it in my first year, it probably would have been more difficult to do my job and also to get a good rapport with all the clubs in the QAFL. Mm-hmm. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Up next... Andrew Ireland sets his sights on transforming footy in the Sunshine State. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with the highly respected former administrator, Andrew Ireland. Well, Andrew, by 1990, and after a decade working in just about every level of the game in Queensland, you take over as the CEO of the then Brisbane Bears, who only came into the competition some three years earlier. It was a troubled infancy in many ways, wasn't it? The side, I think, only won 15 games across your first four years there. Must have been some challenging days and weeks and months. Yeah, it was. Um, it was interesting because um, the period just before I joined, I'd been CEO of the QAFL and... Um, had spent actually a lot of time in conflict with the Bears. Um, part of the initial agreement, which was a tripartite agreement between AFL, QAFL and the Cronin Syndicate, was the team had to be located in metropolitan Brisbane unless it had the written permission of the QAFL. And the QAFL did provide permission for uh, the Bears to play their first season at Carrara because at that stage there wasn't really a suitable ground in Brisbane and it needed to be some more negotiations with the government. Um, but then Scase decided, I think mainly because he had the Mirage Resort on the Gold Coast, that he would not come back to Brisbane and so we ended up in court fighting with them. It was very hard for the AFL because I'm sure and having seen some of the correspondence once I got to the club, Behind the scenes, they were fighting hard to get the team back to Brisbane. But Scase at that time uh, also owned Channel 7 and held the broadcasting rights. So it was a really sort of intense period. And then uh, obviously Scase went bust and went off to Mallorca. And um, I got approached Shane O'Sullivan, who I've been a good mate with during that period, I think it'd be fair to say that behind the scenes, Shane recognised the team should be in Brisbane, but it was very difficult as the footy manager at the Bears to be publicly saying that. Shane, uh, the, the new ownership, um, Ruben Pellerman became the owner. The, the AFL gave ANZ Bank a chance to on-sell the licence, which Ruben bought. But I've got to say, it would have been... I know it was Shane who said to Ruben that they should appoint me as... Um, CEO. So I went down to Carrara, but my first meeting with uh, Ruben was really, Ruben, I know you're a Gold Coast person, but this team, if it's going to survive and and really do what it needs to do, needs to be based in Brisbane. 
Mm. And whilst that was really tough for him, um, to his credit, he gave us the scope to do it. And we, in fact, um, we played a couple of trial games, or not when I say trial games, we played a couple of pre-season games at the Gabba and also three games in, I think it might have been 90 or 91 at the Gabba as a, a bit of a trial. And that was pretty hard because the dog track was still there. It was a tiny ground. Um, but, you know, and they were tough times at Carrara. But um, it was good that the board, who were a lot of Gold Coast people, understood that the team wasn't going to survive on the Gold Coast at that time. And so um, planning was pretty much in place from the time that I got there to try to relocate back to the to Brisbane. But as you say, it was tough on the ground. Um, you know, the initial rules the club was given were, to be frank, deplorable. And um, it was an era where... Um, the VFL needed the money. The clubs needed the money. You know, the, 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 the club paid the $4 million licence fee to join the competition, paid exorbitant uh, transfer fees. And also, you know, one of the, th- the ones that really hit me was to play in the competition. We paid our airfares and accommodation to go, but we also had to pay for the teams to come up to play us in Brisbane, um, mm-hmm. both at senior and reserve level. So they were tough times. Um, but I often say now, you know, when you look at the Suns um, and the difficulties they've had, you couldn't have predicted, I don't think, that in 1990 when I joined the club that by a decade later that you'd see, you know, probably arguably the best team ever playing in 2001, two and three. So yeah. things can change. It might seem hard at the time, but sometimes these things can change for the better over time. Yeah, well, after a couple of trials, that permanent move from Carrara to the Gabba was made in 1993. Now, in that same year, Andrew, there was a guy, and he was an in-demand, high-flying full forward for the Fitzroy Lions by the name of Alistair Lynch. He'd kicked 68 goals that year. Somehow he was named at full-back in the All-Australian team in the same season, if you don't mind. Now... He was ahead of his time in the sense that he crossed from Fitzroy to Brisbane in 94, which was two years before the merger. Now, to get him up north, you showed you were ahead of your time too with this contract. Talk about a sign of things to come. And you two were the pioneers of the mega deal. Ten years at, what was it, around $300,000 a season. And Alistair Lynch was already 25. Yeah, look, it, it, it wasn't that. It wasn't quite that high. I still remember it, it was... Um, it was a flat $180,000 a year for 10 years. Right. Plus, um, we promised that we'd uh, get him a job, which he got with um, Coke. And so it sort of rounded out at just over $200,000 a year. Right. It was in, a really interesting in that that 10-year deal we first put together to try and get Jason Dunstall to return to Queensland. And... We met with Jason and tried to convince him to come to Queensland. He didn't want to, and obviously, um, I think he already had his head around that his future could be in media and the like post-football, and um, so he wanted to focus on that. Um, And Scotty Clayton, who was um, head of recruiting at the Bears and then became head of uh, footy, said, look, you know, if we can't get Jason, I reckon Lynchy is the next best person in the comp. And obviously Fitzroy were going through its uh, its struggles. Um, I remember meeting with Damien Smith, who was uh, Alistair's manager, 
and the reality was, you know, and it, it, it's sad, but the players in, the, in that period at, at Fitzroy weren't certain that they'd get their money every month and they had mortgages and the like. And for Lynchy, um, it was more about the, about security and being able to know that he could set himself up for the future with his family. So it was a big deal. Um, uh, interestingly, uh, as I left the club, um, we signed him for his 11th year. That's right. Because by, by 2001, the 180000 was actually a very cheap deal. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But, but Andrew, how are the nerves, though, after signing this decade-long uh, contract that when Lynchy plays only 13 games in year one, I think he breaks his collarbone a couple of times, he has a knee operation, and then he only plays once in year two and he contracts chronic fatigue syndrome. Your nerves must have been fraying. Uh, extremely. Um, <laughs> Lynchy, Lynchy jokes about the fact in his career he slept through a couple of them, um, I've got to say, as an administrator, you're sort of um, you're clearly worried about what that what that means. I, I mean, I, I think it was a, probably in an era where had he retired and not been able to play, we probably wouldn't have been obligated to pay the contract through because clearly his non-capacity to play would have been caused by illness, and that was only if he decided to retire, obviously. Um, but luckily for us, um, it, it was something that did fix up and he was able to get back and play and was such a wonderful player for the club. He was, um, you know, probably biased having watched him closely over that period, but he was a nightmare to play on because in that in that area you could sort of push and shove and wrestle a little bit one-on-one duels. And so you, he was such a strong man, you needed to play a very strong player on him, but he was also really quick on the lead and it was hard to find players who could do both. Um, he was a great player. He was. Clearly, we could talk about this for an hours, hours and hours, but the, the merger, I mean, Fitzroy were linked to Sydney, Melbourne, Footscray, uh, North Melbourne before the Brisbane Lions were officially launched on November 1st, 96. I mean, a merger doesn't cater for everyone, obviously. Were there many sleepless nights over who would and wouldn't survive it? Uh, yeah, look, it, it, it was um, it was a really difficult thing. The one thing I would say is um, we'd been speaking to Fitzroy for a long time, and early in '96 we actually had a contract in place. I'd spent a lot of time looking at their finances, uh, met with their finance committee, and we'd worked really hard um, to have a contract in place. Um, Dyson Hall Lacey felt uncomfortable. I remember me, he and Noel Gordon and myself met in his chambers, uh, would have been in, in April, and they were having trouble uh, getting their accounts finalised um, and passed. And so their annual general meeting had been pushed back and pushed back and was actually coming up in April. And Dyson said, look, I, I don't want to sign the contract. I don't want to go to the meeting knowing I've signed it. Um, and so we, it wasn't signed. They had the annual general meeting. And then not long after that, I got a call from someone who I won't mention at the AFL to say they're now, um, we know that they were close to, to us because obviously we needed to talk to the AFL. They were providing a lump of money um, to support mergers. I think it was $6 million. And 
um, we we sort of um, we got told that North Melbourne were now back in the fold, and then there was a lot of history. But ultimately, the commission decided that we should have the license. And one of the things that we said was, look, we understand we in '96 we actually got to the preliminary final, so as the Bears and we're playing good footy, and so there was rightfully was concern about how strong a new merged team would be. And we said, look, we should only have a handful of players come as part of the merge and only increase our list a little bit. North Melbourne wanted virtually to take the, have a huge list and almost have both lists available. And we recognised the other clubs weren't going to accept that. And so in, ultimately the clubs and the AFL, and importantly the administrator, who's bound by all the rules, the, the, the legal legalese that, controls these sorts of things decided the Brisbane offer was better than North and that happened clearly tough for the Fitzroy people I remember we said we'd um, we owed it to them to have a meeting and we had a meeting at the Sedalis Brooks Hall where there were a lot of irate people I can say I went I spoke first and I felt like I was facing Kirtley Ambrose and the best um Best West Indian attack because I had plenty of, of things coming at my throat. Um, but uh, ultimately, uh, Kevin Murray spoke and said was always supportive about the merger. And I think the fact that you know we could change the because we we didn't have a long history, we could change the jumper and the song and do more for Fitzroy, Fitzroy historically um, with felt we had a good chance to do that. I've got to say, the Bears people weren't particularly happy either because you know, they'd gone through some tough times, not only a, you know, only reasonably a small period of time, but by 96, as I say, we were in the preliminary final. So their, the supporters in Brisbane weren't overly chuffed either that we were going to give up the Bears heritage. Michael Voss, Andrew, he'll be forever remembered as one of the greats of the AFL, let alone the Bears and the Lions. I mean, three flags, five All-Australians, two best and fairest, and he sits obviously very comfortably in the Hall of Fame. But I, I want to ask you about the Brownlow he won in 96 alongside James Hurd. Now, incredibly, Voss, he did his own contracts, I think. Now, am I right in saying that 1996, at the start of that year or prior to that season, uh, after negotiating with you, just as his way on his way outside your office, as he got to the door there, he turned around and uh, asked for a Brownlow clause to be inserted? He did. Exactly right. He uh, he and his father used to negotiate the contract and we'd been sitting there and agreed all the terms and shook hands and uh, they got up to leave the boardroom and Michael actually just got out the door and then tapped and came back in. So look, one last thing. Um, would you be willing to put a Brownlow clause in? And I thought, well, he's a very, very good player, but winning a Brownlow is not that easy. So I'm happy to do that. If he's good enough to win it, he deserves a clause. So we agreed, I think it was for the same sort of money had he won the club championship, which he clearly did as well. Um, but he, yeah, so he, he uh, was very sure of what he could do in footy and um, he certainly uh, got that clause inserted in his contract. Andrew, could you tell us, are you willing to tell us what it cost you in the end, that clause? Look, honestly, my memory's not very... For, for those sort of numbers, not so good. I, I, I reckon it might have been 
you know, twenty thousand dollars, something like that, which yeah. in those days was still, you know, a, a fair lump of money. As I say, in that period, um, Lynchy was probably our highest paid player on one hundred and eighty thousand. Mm. Lee Matthews, he retired in nineteen eighty five, of course, after a career many believe remains the best ever. He then became a Collingwood immortal when he steered the pies to the nineteen ninety flag, and then he was sacked in nineteen ninety five, Andrew, and seemingly enjoying retirement. Now you just finished the Lions, the ninety eight season with the wooden spoon. How on earth did you talk him out of retirement to coach in ninety nine? Well, it was it was it was interesting. I, I think you know, a bit like Collingwood in in '76, when it, it, it the year before and previous years it had played finals, had a lot of internal disruptions, ended up in the wooden spoon, and then went to the top of the ladder the next year. When we were, when I spoke to Lee, the thing that we did have, we we uh, the uh, Bears had played finals under Wolsey in '95, had got to a preliminary final in '96, had played finals in '97. And then the whole thing became really political in 98 and we got uh, the wooden spoon. But I think it was Lee was always, when we chatted to him, uh, I remember Jeff Brown, who was the AFL uh, legal advisor, also used to provide, he didn't manage Lee, but they, they were good mates and he provided advice to him. And Jeff and I have always been really good mates. And I was t- talking to Jeff one day and I said, what, what do you think about Lee? And he said, look, um, Fremantle have actually approached him and he's knocked them back. Uh, Channel 7 um, are about to try and lock up all their talent for the 2000 Olympics. If you're going to have a chat to him, you need to do it sort of straight away. So we met um, Alan Piper, Graham Downey and myself met uh, Lee at Jeff Brown's office. The end of two hours, Alan, who was always straight, well, what do you think, Lee, will any chance? And he said, Alan, 95% chance, no, 5% perhaps that I could. Alan and um, Graham left and actually Lee and I chatted on the footpath just outside Jeff's office for about another half hour. And by the end of the half hour, because he made a couple of points, was um, one, if I'm going to coach, now's the time, I have to do it. I've never moved away from home. I've always lived in the southern suburbs of Melbourne. Um, the only other place I've actually been to of any note at any time is Queensland, and I've enjoyed it there. I think the team has got some good players. Um, and so, and then the other point he made was, you know, coaching is such a thrill. Um, you know, if you if you coach a good side. You know, they might win 14 or 15 games a year. And I love the thrill of winning, but I also hate the, the loss. So that means probably every third week you're going to lose. Um, but the, the cut and thrust of the game is so good. And a couple of weeks later, um, Lee rang and said, yes, I am considering it. And then Gubby rang me, uh, who had worked so closely with Lee at Collingwood. And Gub said, look, um, he is seriously considering, just to let you know, he's asked whether I'd come and I'm considering that, so you might need to factor that in. And then the very last game of the uh, ninth of the season prior to Lee joining us, we were actually playing St Kilda in the last round of the season at the Gabba. They were in the finals, we were bottom. We beat them with sort of the last kick of the game to forfeit an extra 
priority pick in the draft, which so we didn't tank. Um, and but Lee met us just before the game because he was up to broadcast for seven and com- said he would join us. And you know, just fantastic relief for the club. And you know, as it proved, uh, what a great choice it was. And he's been such. You know, he was a fantastic coach for for the Lions to get them to those three premierships. But his uh, importance for the club, you know, still on the board, and just. His standing in the game in in the game and to be in Queensland has just made a huge difference. I'm sure. Yeah, I've, you know, yeah. I think he had a lot of us, Andrew, with the "if it bleeds, we can kill it" line. I don't know if that was yours or his in the end, but uh, from Predator. But I think he had uh, those that weren't convinced were convinced after that, and just that premiership in '01. I mean, obviously the first in the club's history against Essendon. I wanted to ask you what it meant for you personally after what must have already felt like a very long journey for you in footy. Yeah, I'm not not sure that you wake up with nightmares, but certainly your sleep is sometimes disrupted by the fact not winning those premierships when you play. Um, And I've got to say, um, there was just unbelievable relief and pride um, in that when we won that 2001 premiership. Your point about you know if it um, if it bleeds, you can kill it. It, it, the, the team started sort of reasonable form that year, but then beat Essendon and really almost were, under, I think, undefeated for 15 rounds or something like that through the back end of the season and the finals. And um, the team recognised in that in that Essendon game that they were a talented team, but if they really clicked as a team, they could go a long way. And um, it was unbelievable. And as you say, for someone who's been involved in footy, uh, I've got no doubt that winning a premiership as a player would be the number one. I think coaching the team would be probably number two. But as a CEO of a club and having been through all those hard yards at Carrara and you know sometimes wondering whether the club was even going to survive, uh, to actually be part and see um, the the win for the players, for the supporters, you know the. That for Brisbane to win their first premiership, the first um, development state premiership, but also for all those Fitzroy people, and you know, I think when we when we merged, Fitzroy had under 2,000 members. By 2001, we had uh, 10,000 members in Melbourne. So, um, you know, obviously most of those Fitzroy people. So, it was an unbelievable day and a great win. Fantastic, it was. Uh, you with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. After this break, from one developing footy state to another, Andrew Island heads to New South Wales to join the Sydney Swans. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with former Brisbane and Sydney CEO, Andrew Ireland. Well, Andrew, what convinced you to go from the CEO of the Premiership winning Lions to the general manager of football at the Swans before the 2002 season? Yeah, look, the, after 2001, to be frank, having been through 12 seasons with 
um, the Bears Lions, but also those three years sort of battling um, over where the team should play. I, I was pretty washed out and finished up with the Lions. Um, I went overseas uh, with my family to have a, a good break, an extended break overseas. But just before I left to go overseas, um, Richard Collis approached me and said, would I be interested in going to Sydney? Um, I'd enjoyed being CEO at the at the Lions. Um, I knew my way around Queensland. I sort of was well connected with government and the corporate area. But that part of um, of footy probably didn't enjoy. I didn't enjoy as much as the footy side. And in the era I'd been CEO, I also, also did all the player contracts and coaches' contracts as well as look after the commercial side of the business. So it was a pretty big, uh, pretty big agenda to be on top of. When I spoke to Richard, I said, look, I don't, I don't enjoy the, um, that sort of commercial thing that well, I need to do in Sydney. I don't know Sydney. And as we talked, Richard said, look, well, my view is there's probably a, almost like a CEO role um, in footy. And would you consider that? You can do all the contracting. The coach can report to you as Lee had done in my, when I was at Brisbane. And so um, I went away and thought about it um, and in the end decided, yeah, look, this sounds a good opportunity. So um, decided to take the role as uh, general manager of footy and um, it was a role I really enjoyed. It was, you know, back right into the heart of the footy department um, and there was um, plenty to do. At Sydney, not that it was broken in any way. They'd, you know, they'd been a, a strong club, having played in the grand final um, only a few years before I got there. Um, but there was great opportunity, and um, you know, Ruzi got appointed. We had some good staff. We committed, um, and one of the things that Lee had really pushed when he got to the Lions was to be um, really strong in the off-field footy area. So they'd spent, we'd spent a lot more money on uh, sports science and medicine and the like. And um, so I was keen to do that in Sydney and we sort of undertook to do that. The board really fortunately committed um, at the start of the 05 season to spend almost a million dollars more. And some of the stuff wasn't um, that, when I say that exciting, it was, you know, the, the AFL used to provide... And, provided you with an allowance that allowed two players to share a room. I know with Brisbane, we'd allowed, because sleeping habits and people and the like, to, to give them the best opportunity to play their best footy, we made sure they all had a their own room and things like that. But we also spent um, a lot more on sports science. We took our doctors and medical team overseas every year and just really focused on making the, the, the club as elite as we could in that footy area. You had an eventful start there anyway at the Swans because uh, Rodney Eade had done some good things there, as you say, but by 02 or the middle of 02, the side was on the nose and he was replaced by Ruzi, as you say, who was the caretaker and then became the full-time coach in 2003. I wanted to ask you, though, Andrew, Ruzi's coaching style wasn't for everyone and you came from a high-scoring Brisbane outfit to a side that played a pretty negative, defensive-minded style. Now, there's an old saying, obviously, about letting the cobblers cobble, but as the footy boss, how did it wash with you? 
No, it was fine. I mean, one the, the, the thing that hit me most about Rusey, and it's interesting because I think football clearly has moved down uh, the way that Rusey, uh, Rusey's approach to it. And that was very much um, the people here in the footy department, me as coach, are really here as a resource to help the footy players be the best they can, both individually and as a team. And... Um, yeah, he made it very strong and you know, the Bloods culture sort of really emanated out of that in that what you end up being and showing on the ground is going to be absolutely driven by the players. We we will, you know, to your point, um, tactically, I'll give you the, the guidance about how I think we should play, but in the end, your conduct, the way you play the game is going to be very much about yourself. And Stewie Maxfield led that sort of revolution really well um, but you know, I think I think what it, it does show one, and, and you know, people will argue this, but in all sports around the world, um, the defensive aspects of the game are the things that have spiked over the last you know, couple of decades, and that's because probably it's easier to do. It's easier to stop people scoring than score yourself. But Ruzi also, you know, in that in that area, and this is before um, you know having. Uh, lots of people behind the ball. Ruzi was very much about playing man on man and winning your your possession, or getting extra numbers across to the ball to make sure that you're outnumbered at the ball. And um, yeah, he did tag probably more than some teams through the midfield. I remember when we you know first getting there and playing Brisbane, and, and Ruzi had almost straight away had great success. And that was by matching up really well on on their key players, and obviously uh, guys, the ones that people perhaps remember, Jared Crouch playing on Acker and driving him nuts, but also being able to put some pressure on their midfield, you know, guys like Kirky being able to play on Simon Black, and just not give them the freedom to dominate, which they had had been able to do. So it was an interesting era. Uh, I mean, to me, um, I never questioned it. I, the thing that always does hit me, though, and, and you know, in the middle of that um, 205 Premiership year, Andrew Demetrio famously made some comments about our style of game. Ugly and unattractive, I, we were, I think, were the terms he used. <laughs> yeah, and I, we were over in Perth about to pay West Coast, and I remember my phone started pinging um, with messages, and... Um, you know, it didn't take long to find out that that's what Andrew had said. Now, the season rolls through. We get to the finals. We go to Perth. Um, I thought we were, you know, it was one of the worst decisions I've seen. Leo Barry gets a terrible free kick against him in the last quarter. We end up losing that game. We come back and play Geelong in the final. Um, you know, Nick Davis is famously kicks the four goals, the last goal going through with a couple of seconds to go. And we win and go on to win the premiership. Had we not done that, we would have been out in straight sets and, you know, the whole history sort of changes and we probably might have been under pressure about the style of game. Um, but fortunately, we got through and, and had, you know, won what was an incredible grand final and so, um, yeah, the 
the, the style probably gets lost a little bit. And, you know, a lot of people have said that those two finals against West Coast, and in fact, all the games against West Coast over that period were some of the best games of footy you'd see. Yeah, yeah. I kind of the outpouring of emotion on that day as well in '05. Obviously, from all the long-suffering supporters, given how long it had been, and it must have been an, a, a massively powerful day for you um, to get it done. And I guess in your case, you've helped two so-called developing states. I wonder if that was any extra cause of satisfaction for you. Yeah, look, it, 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 you know, it hit me being involved with um, the first two, you know, first premiership for each of those teams in the northern markets states. But as, a, as I mentioned with the Fitzroy people, um, you know, and, and I, I shouldn't dismiss them. Sometimes people can uh, probably comes out of Melbourne a bit, a bit glibly that um, you know the, the Sydney supporters either don't know the game as well or they're not quite as rusted on. Um, you know, they've been through a lot of hard years and, um, you know, a lot of supporters are now through the generations in Sydney. So for those people, it was an unbelievably uh, big win. But you can't doubt those South Melbourne people who had suffered for all those years. Mm. Um, you know, when you're talking 72 years, geez. Um, you know, the, the number of notes we got from elderly people saying, I can happily die now. <laughs> but hopefully they didn't, but... Um, you know, it was just unbelievable. And, you know, one of the things, I guess, when you're a, a, an interstate club and, you know, you play the game, you have the function in Melbourne, and then to actually spend the time in Melbourne on the morning, on the Sunday morning, in both cases, um, you know, with Brisbane going to the old Brunswick Street Oval and then with the Swans down into Albert Park, um and seeing the supporters and the, 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 the smiles on their faces and the number of youngsters, you know, you, the people who've obviously been supporters for years and years and passed the swans down through the generations, um, unbelievably rewarding. And, you know, for the Bob Skiltons and um, mm. Peter Bedfords and all those people who'd been through some tough yards and both of those, you know, both Bob and Peter, have both said to me, um, you know, separately, but the same message. Um, thank you so much uh, to the club. Um, for so long, I played for a team that wasn't respected and not well regarded. It was seen as a, you know, pretty host, you know, pretty poor club in Melbourne. You know, obviously Bobby and Peter only playing in that one final through that through their period. Um, for them, they were so proud uh, that they were now. Not only the club that had won the premiership, but was you know, highly regarded around Australia. Yeah, and I guess before we leave the Swans here and take a break, uh, Andrew, I guess you naturally cast a different eye over the club when you take over as CEO like you did in 2009 at the Swans. But I imagine none of that mattered. I wanted to get your thoughts when it came to the way Adam Goods' career ended. I mean, obviously, a dual Brownlow medalist, a grade of the game. Today, how do you reflect on the so-called booing saga that saw him take indefinite leave in 2015 and ultimately retire? Uh, Sam, it was horrific. I mean, I think um, with the passage of time and obviously the two documentaries, um, when you see those, um, I think it it sort of threw a, a true light on what Adam was going through. At the time, I think probably we could see it, and I'm not certain that others could see it 
so uh, clearly. Um, I think sadly, Australia, you know, Australia still does have some racial racial problems, and um, you know, not as bad as America, but things that we need to address. And uh, for Adam, it was unbelievably tough. You know, for a guy who played such good football, and you know, people talked about, um, you know, it was he was getting booed because of free kicks and the like. It was absolute garbage. He played his whole career the same way um, he got booed really it, it really started um, after he was named Australian of the year I, I, I suspect that there was already some mounting uh, tension after him calling out the girl in the game against Collingwood the year before mm. um, but he when he was named Australian of the year um, and you know it was horrific and I've been, I'm a very close friend of Adam and Michael O'Loughlin. I've um, been a strong supporter of their Go Foundation. Uh, I think it'd be fair to say that Adam, um, as close as he is to John and the footy department, um, because I'd been the head of footy and knew him so well, and you know we still catch up regularly, certainly pre-COVID, to, for lunches. Um, Adam spent a fair bit of time with me heading towards the end of the year he retired and um, in a footy sense I think he could have played on but both of us um, and I, I sort of said look mate I don't think it's going to stop um, I don't think the AFL can stop it and the more people say don't do it there are some people out there who are just going to continue to do it and you know, not only the public booing but and, and Adam had been used to it, but the vitriol through social media, you know, we had to intercept a huge number of letters at the club from people who clearly just had unbelievable racial tendencies and it was just a really sad part. Um, you know, you want to look at one little uptick from it, maybe it's made Australia look more closely at itself, but... Adam had to pay a terrible price for that. Oh, it's a terribly uh, sad chapter in our uh, nation's sporting story, isn't it? Um, we're talking to Andrew Island on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back shortly with Andrew, who used all of his guile and experience to orchestrate one of the biggest player moves in the game's history, Lance Franklin's shift to the Swans. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Player turned football manager turned CEO, Andrew Ireland has been our guest today. Andrew, I'm fascinated to know, what gossip mag were you reading in 2012 when you noticed that Hawthorne superstar Lance Franklin had found love in Sydney and was travelling up to spend time in the Harbour City with Miss Universe? Yeah, look, I must admit, I can't recall the specific one. I think I might have noted it in a couple of occasions and like a lot of things in footy, um, the rumour mill sort of churns around and we started to hear it uh, reasonably regularly. So it made sense. I was chatting to Liam Pickering one day about another player and um, I thought I might as well 
throw it into the conversation. And I said, look, I hear Lance is coming up to Sydney a lot. Um, if at any stage he got to the stage where he thought that Sydney could be a good place to be, um, <laughs> give us a call because we'd be very interested. And um, nothing happened at the time, um, but eventually uh, Liam and I had some further conversations. On the surface, Andrew, Lance had everything he wanted at Hawthorne. He had two flags, four All-Australians. He was 26, the superstar centrepiece in a side locked into premiership contention. I mean, when you did raise his name with his then-manager, Liam Pickering, did you do it on the assumption that it was a Hail Mary in every sense? Uh, yeah, a little bit, although, uh, you know, in talking to Liam and, and having spoken to other Hawthorne players, you know, post, um, post Lance joining us, when I, we've, there's been chances when I've been with Lance and with some of those players. Um, as you would know in Melbourne, Lance was such a big name. He couldn't go outside. He couldn't go down to buy a newspaper at the local store or buy milk without having people come up to him and want to ch chat about footy. And as big as Lance's persona is on the ground... Um, off the ground, he's actually, you know, quite shy and um, you probably see that bit by just the amount of media that he doesn't do. Mm. Um, so, you know, over the years, I think it'd been, you know, we'd, it, it, you know, clearly with Tony Lockett and Barry Hall, both of them had appreciated um, being out of mainstream, a mainstream footy state. But also, you know, the key one was, well, if Lance... Uh, and Jacinda were going to end up being serious together. And Jacinda's life needed to focus more in Sydney than in Melbourne. Maybe there was an opportunity to bring, um, if they were going to come together, for that to happen in Sydney. So we always thought that there was a, a, a chance. And, you know, the fact that Lance had played um, in those grand finals, I'm sure people are always wanting to play in more success. But, you know, we'd had a... No, we'd beaten them in 2012. Um, he knew if he came to us that we had a pretty competitive team as well. But at the heart of it, I think, um, you know, was the fact that he wanted to be with Jacinta and that Sydney um, probably gave him a different sort of lifestyle. I'm sure yeah, it wasn't it was an easy decision for him. Yeah, yeah, because it was a few months after. I mean, a lot of months had gone by and you'd heard nothing. It was a few months after that 2012 premiership. Uh, I think you'd brought in Kurt Tippett in December of that year that Liam Pickering called uh, John Longmire to tell him Lance might be interested. Now, can you remember when that was relayed to you, Andrew, and the realisation that the bait you dropped in the water nearly a year earlier had finally got a nibble? Um, it would have been around that period... Um post the trade period on the run-up to Christmas. Because the thing I do know is that Lance and Liam met with John and myself um, at my place uh, in Centennial Park in early January in... Um, well, I'm just running out of... 2013. The year before he joined us, his last year with the Hawks. Yeah, 2013, yeah. Yeah. And, and so and, when we had yeah. that discussion, and, and John, John, it was interesting because John and I thought um, the way we'd approach the meeting was not to try to win him over to come to us. 
but actually talked to him about all the hard parts he was going to need to go through because you know, it's, it's easy to sort of contemplate the thought of doing it, but you know, the reality of having to tell your teammates, the reality of um, you know, going through the season and not signing a new contract, all of those things, um, you know, and we said to him, <laughs> you, you know, we think you, you probably do know your place in footy, but this will be huge. So it's going to come under huge scrutiny, um, and so you, that you need to be um, aware of that. Um, but as it panned out, he um, he was keen, which was yeah, great uh, for us. I mean, I mean, Andrew, can you speak to this? I mean, more recently, in recent times, we've seen Joe Danaher um, get seen catching up with Tom Harley up there in Sydney. I mean, can you paint the picture around the critical importance of secrecy and the ticking time bomb you had once Lance agreed at the meeting to come, if you could manage it? Uh, yeah, look, the... the well, there was a, a, a couple of things. One, uh, and I've always had this view, um, I think our game is better than rugby league for not uh, having publicly, having the public know about player movement in the season. And I think, um, yeah, one of the things with Lance was no matter what we did, he was a restricted free agent. So Hawthorne were always a chance to match the, an offer that we put to them. I mean, we thought that the offer we eventually came up with, they probably wouldn't. But um, the reality is they could. So there's no certainty for Lance that it, it would absolutely happen. Um, but the, to me, um, I don't think it's a good look. And so we, we did a lot to make sure that the meeting stayed secret. Um, it was probably uh, it was probably in the middle of the year when we started to talk to Liam around um, more seriously about well where's Lance's head is he still in the same thing and it really started to become yes um, that's what he wants to do but I was pretty confident I reckon after the first meeting in January that he was deadly serious about it and um, you know you didn't need to be having a lot of meetings to know that it would be texts between Liam and myself. And then the other thing we did do, which we needed to do, was in the mid-year break, um, Lance came up to see Jacinta and take spend some time and we had our club doctor come to my house and we did a medical on him at the house, but again, really wanted to keep it secret. And um, sort of jumping to the end of the year, it, it, I, I had a phone call on the Monday before the grand final, um, which Lance was obviously going to play in with the Hawks, uh, and I, I didn't return the call. As it turned out, the journalist would have asked me, he'd heard a whisper that Lance might have been coming to us. And I've said this, I said with Mike Sheehan, that now I don't, I, I, I don't like the thought of lying. I hope I, over my career I haven't had to, but had someone asked me in grand final week, were we... Uh, was Lance likely to come to us? I probably would have lied because I, I wouldn't have felt comfortable with that focus on Lance going into that grand final. You know, a couple of days out from the grand final. Jeez, you'd be doing everything in your life to avoid that question because you made a career out of being a straight shooter and genuine. It would have uh, been a difficult one for you, no doubt about it. Yeah, I, I was I was fortunate. Um, as I say, the journalist rang me late um, on the Monday and then went to the Brownlow. 
and then didn't ring me back. And I didn't feel like I was going to ring that. And it was only a gut feel. It wasn't like the message had anything in it. But speaking to the journalist later, he said, that's what I would have asked you. Yeah. And Andrew, how many people were in the so-called circle of trust when it came to the buddy deal? When we got to the stage of having to put the deal to him, um, uh, the group grew larger. So Richard Collis, Richard Collis had been aware um, from the start, like from not long after the initial discussions. Um, Jared McVeigh, as captain, at about, about the same time we told this other group, Jared McVeigh did because we wanted to ask Jared and he ticked it off because we always, when we were bringing players in, and especially the bigger name players, um, wanted to tick off from the player group. In this case, you know, we said to Jared, you can't go and share it with the rest of the leadership group. It's sorry, but you're going to just have to have this to yourself. Um, but we also had, so we had Richard Collis, and then Richard was going to stand down as president. So Andrew Pridham was already known to be the person to take over. So Andrew did, Andrew McMaster, who was head of our audit and risk, and Jason Ball, who was on our board um, and was sort of liaison between the board and the footy department. So that group, um, became aware of what the oh, sorry and Dean Moore who was the head of footy and mm-hmm. so we we met at Andrew Pridham's offices in the city in um, whenever it was it was it was just before we put the actual um, offer to Lance and signed off that this is what we're going to do and got that imprimatur so it would have been you know a number of months that that group knew and kept it tight. No, it was very much footy's version of Grand Theft Auto and complete secrecy. But, Andrew, the AFL didn't exactly celebrate the coup and their response changed the game forever. I mean, publicly, the then Deputy CEO, Gil McLaughlin, said you were taking a a quote-unquote extraordinary risk on Buddy. But privately, the language was a little more fruity from the league, wasn't it? Uh, Yeah, it was. Um, Gil, Gil, Gil rang me and Gil... I think Gil's always been. You can tell you can tell his temperament, but he's sort of reasonably balanced in his conversations. They can be sort of tough, um, but I also got a call from Andrew Demetrio, and Andrew's at a different level. So um, Andrew made it painfully obvious to us, and yeah, he actually said, "Well, what if I got the commission together tonight and we stripped you of cola?" Um, I said, "Well." If that's the case, then all our players who have got cola will need to take a cut because it's in their contracts, and you're going to have to do that. So they weren't they weren't happy. Um, you know, they ended up getting um, Ken Wood and one of the other investigators to come up and investigate it. I remember chatting to Ken, and they were they were fine. They did what they needed to do. Um, I remember saying to Ken, "Well." You surely don't think that we're offering him more money than what's in the contract. It's a pretty good contract. We're not doing anything um, shifty here. We've been very upfront about what's in the contract. And, um, you know, ultimately, in a thing that I did think was, um, and I, I think a lot of people, you know, we absolutely abided by the rules all the way through. Um, they ended up putting the trade ban on us, which I think was completely unfair and mm. I think most people would, would say it was unfair. Um, but 
um, you know, we we wanted wanted Lance. I I don't think there'd be many clubs around Australia at that time if they said if you if 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 Lance Franklin said yes, I'd like to play for you, that they wouldn't have pursued it. And to my you know to me, clearly um, disappointing that he's missed. Um, you know, this season with the, the hamstrings and uh, hopefully he gets back. But the further, you know, the footy he's played for the Swans over the journey, uh, we've been absolutely wrapped. He's been a huge fillet for the game in Queensland and I, I'm, I think he's a huge fillet for the game all round. The number of people who say to me, you know, they'd watch games simply because Bud was playing in them, uh, I think is a testament to his standing in the game. Oh, he's been superb. But not to end on a a negative note, Andrew, but I guess he's 34 in January. He's obviously still got two years to run on this back-ended contract um, until the end of 2022. And as you say, he's had his injury troubles this year. Is there any risk this could end badly for your old club? Um, Well, I guess there's always a risk. You know, as you mentioned earlier in the piece with with Lynchy, there was a period of time when... We were concerned about that. Um, the thing I'm certain of, and I know from speaking to John Longmire, if Bud's body can be right and he gets on the field, he will still play some incredible footy. So to me, it's not like his capacity to play has diminished. I've got no doubt that he can... The, the, you know, speaking to John, his training form uh, around Christmas time leading into the season, he was just ripping the track up and guys who try and play on him, I mean, it's a real challenge when he's in that sort of form. So I, I don't think there's any doubt about his capacity to play the game. Clearly there's a concern around his hamstrings given what's happened this year. But I'd also say, um, and I know this was an issue for the club as it was going through the COVID lockdown after round one, there were huge concerns, and our club expressed them about the limitations on players like Bud being able to do the type of work they needed to do in a club environment uh, on the machines to make sure that their legs were strengthened. Mm-hmm. And I think Bud suffered from that, and I'm really hopeful that in a normal year he'll be able to um, have his body right and get back out and show the sort of form that that he has in the past. But I clearly can understand why people would, at the moment, question whether he can do it. But I'd love to think he can get back out and play some great footy and perhaps even add to his uh, eight All-Australians. Oh, geez, I think everyone um, in this country would echo that, Andrew, and the game's much better when he's up and about and playing. So hopefully he has a change of luck next season. Andrew Island, it's been great to chat. I mean, if you were to release a book at any point in time, it was no doubt it'd be a bestseller. It's staggering to think of all the big moments you were a player in. Your track record speaks for itself. You've left an incredible legacy at your respective clubs who are very lucky to have your expertise. Well done on everything you achieved and a retirement well earned. Thanks for your time. No, thank you, Sam. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Just jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll catch you next week to celebrate the life of another sporting icon. 
It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.